You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10. You can grab your Bible and follow along with us starting in verse 1. We'll read the first 18 verses. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is God's word. Well, as we mentioned, it may feel like a little intimidating to go through this passage. Both the content covers a lot and also in its, in its length that is covered. Compared to last week, six verses last week, 18 this week, three times more this week, and feels like three times more the content. But we're going to break it down in a way that I hope is going to be clear for us to understand. Let's remember where we are in this series and where we find ourselves in chapter 10. What we've addressed for a few weeks now is this elaborate ritual that the Old Testament worship contained. All of these rituals that the Old Testament believers and Christians needed to go through in order to connect and have communion with God and have their sins forgiven. The solemn movement of the, of the high priest kind of working through the, the temple courtyard and the sacrifices that needed to be made and the, the water purification that needed to be done. And even the, you remember the, the curtains, the two different sets of layers of curtains that needed to be accessed and gone through in order to approach God and his presence. But it wasn't his real intimate presence. It was more symbolic of his presence. It wasn't the immediate presence of God, but rather his glory that was there. All these rituals were, were meant to be this full immersion experience, not just bodily, but with all the senses. It meant to be this holistic full body immersion into worship with God. It meant to shape their consciences. 
shape their inner world, not just their habits, but their, their thoughts, their attitudes, their senses, their outer and inner reality of God's people was captivated during this kind of worship. And now we learn that the external rituals are done away with in order to make way for a better, more fuller, greater, transformational access to God and relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament, all of these rituals meant to be shadows, signs, symbols, metaphors, pointing all to what was to come, which was Jesus Christ. But now these new Christians who were Hebrews, they were Jewish people growing up through the temple worship. Now they've put their faith in Jesus and life is hard. Life is confusing. They are being persecuted. Their life is in danger. They are in threat of losing their life and and feeling cut off from the blessings of God. They feel this weight and burden and they're wondering to themselves, it was a lot easier the old way where we could check off a box, where we could go through these rituals, where we can just follow these rules and feel connected to God. Maybe we should go back to the old way of doing things. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do that. Because if you do that, you will forfeit any hope and chance of relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do not go back to the old way. Don't rely on external works, external rituals, works of the flesh to gain access to God, to have favor with God, or to forgive your sins because you won't get it that way. Our passage, the author continues in this argument comparing the old and the new, and he does it by addressing these three things. Here's how we'll break it up this morning. He addresses it in this way, the will of God, the obedience of Jesus, and the sanctification of God. Of God's people. Let's look first at the will of God. He does away with the temple, doing away with the temple, doing away with external rituals, doing away with blood sacrifices through animals, doing away with the symbolic washing of the priest, doing away with the curtain, doing away with the candelabra and the incense and everything there, doing away with all of that to make way for Jesus was the plan all along. Jesus isn't plan B. It wasn't that God instituted all of these means of relationship with him and forgiveness of sins and it didn't work and so he sends Jesus as a plan B. The will of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, the heart and mind of God was always to send Jesus. It was always about Jesus. And he says, you would have known this if you've read your Bibles. You would have known this if you read Psalm 40, which is quoted here word for word in verse five through seven. You see that right in the, kind of towards the beginning of our passage that we read. Verse five to seven is quoted from Psalm 40, written by King David. And the author though attributes these words, not to King David, but to Jesus himself. Look at verse five to seven. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The will of God was to send Jesus all along. What's the the will of God? What is the will of God? Man, what's, what does it mean to have a will? 
means to have purpose. It means to have authority. It means to have a plan, a purpose. It means to have a direction for your life and a destiny to which you move. What is the will of God? It can be understood in the same way. It's God's plan. It is God's mind and heart. It was always about sending a savior into the world. It was never meant to be about works. It was never meant to be about animal sacrifices. It was never meant to be through rituals of the flesh. It was never meant for us to be good enough people to make our way to God to find forgiveness of sins and relationship with him. The plan was never that we would make amends because of our failures, making amends for our failures through our character, record, or activity. It was never that way. It was always meant to be about Jesus taking on human flesh, offering himself for the sins of his people according to the will of God, the plan of God. If you read through the gospel accounts in scripture, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where they flesh out more fully the life of Jesus and his ministry on earth, you will hear Jesus repeat a phrase often throughout his life. I have come to do the will of God. I have come to do the will of God. Not my words, but the words that he has given to me. Not my will, but your will be done. I've come to do the will of God. Jesus knew his purpose for coming to earth was to do the will of God. And the whole purpose of Jesus' coming was to, obedient, to be an obedient, perfect son, obeying God's command and dying for sinners. You know, the New Testament's not the only place we find out about Jesus. The whole Old Testament was about Jesus. Every sign, every shadow, every metaphor, every symbol pointed to the will of God in sending Jesus to save us. And our passage goes on. Our author wants to give us some proofs for why that is true, that this is always about Jesus, and let me prove it to you. And he gives three proofs of why it's the will of God. Now, I really try to stay away from this kind of outline where I give you three points and then the first point has three points. That's like a big rule breaker for me. <laughs> I'm gonna do it today though. But it's gonna be really quick, so just stick with me, okay? <laughs> the first point has three points, which also has three subpoints. And No, here it is. Why was this God's plan all along? How do we know? He says in verse one, it was just a shadow. The law was just a shadow. The law was just a shadow. It's never the real deal. I've used a couple analogies over the last few weeks to describe this. Once was the scaffolding, uh, repairing the dome on the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. And not knowing that, if you didn't know what they were doing, you might look at that and seeing it for the first time, thinking it looks a little odd, but taking pictures of it and admiring it. But the scaffolding was there for the purpose of making that dome beautiful to reveal one day what was beneath the scaffolding, underneath the scaffolding, the scaffolding isn't the focus. The scaffolding is the means by which we are exposed to the beautiful dome of the Capitol building. It'd be crazy to then find our hope in the scaffolding, to fall in love with the beauty of the scaffolding because it is meant to be put up, torn down, to expose the beauty of the Capitol. Another is that example of receiving a gift of a picture of a gift that has yet to arrive in the mail. You open up a present and it's a picture of the thing that that person bought you that didn't get shipped yet. It's a weird feeling, right? There's weird emotions that happen. You're like, I know this gift is to come, but it hasn't come yet, but this is just a symbol. It'd be strange then to fall in love with that picture. It'd be strange to frame it and to say, thank you so much for this gift. No, that's not the gift. 
That is a symbol, it's a shadow, it's a picture, it's a representation of what is to come that will be a blessing. I'm reminded of a third. My father-in-law gave uh, my mother-in-law, his wife, an Apple watch for Christmas one year, and it was an old antique watch wrapped around an apple. He's like, I promise it's coming. It hasn't come yet. I thought that was really clever. It'd be strange to fall in love with that, with this apple wrapped around with a watch. It's an apple watch. No, she, she would know that the gift, the real gift would come. If you got a choice between a real relationship with God or a symbolic relationship with God, which would you pick? The author is making that argument. And he says, if you go back to the old way, if you go back to think that you can offer something of your character, of your record, check, of going through these rituals to please God, to forgive your sins, you are putting all of your hope in a shadow and not what the shadow represents, not the person that casts that shadow. Don't do it. And it was never about this. And so that's the point number one. The second proof is verse two to three. He says, let's talk about this. If the law worked, then why do we have to keep doing it every year? If the animal sacrifices worked, why do you have to keep going back every year? Think about that. You think that this animal sacrifice can forgive your sins and give you complete and perfect access, immediate access to God, then why does it have to happen every single year over and over and over again? Have you ever thought maybe it's not working? Maybe what you offer to God isn't enough. Maybe there's not any sacrifice that you can give, even the perfect, most perfect bull or lamb that could be offered cannot do the trick. Otherwise, someone should have figured it out. Someone could have been able to give the best sacrifice and it would have been over. But it isn't over. Jesus needed to come. In verse three, he tells us, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this is really interesting. Actually, it's quite discouraging The purpose for animal sacrifices wasn't to forgive our sins. The purpose of animal sacrifices every year was to remind us that we were still sinful. To always put before us that we are in need of a savior. You can't do it on your own. You need a savior. You need a rescuer. You need someone to come and to forgive your sins. And every single year was this ritual to remind them that their sins were ever before them. They couldn't do anything to keep their sins away. And finally, the proof in verse four is it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What does it point out? It points out that not only are we sinners in need of rescue, but there's nothing that we can offer in sacrifice to take away our sins. Everything that we could possibly attempt to give to God would never be enough. Animal sacrifice would never work. What if we gave like, the best bulls, still not enough. What if we gave like all the bulls and goats in all of the nation, not enough. What if we gave like, what if we bred animals just for the purpose of being a sacrifice to God? What if we killed every animal on the face of the planet as an act of allegiance and worship to God and sacrifice for our sins? It's still not enough. King David makes this point again in Psalm 51 after he is convicted of his own sin of murder and adultery. In 51.16, he says this, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, David is saying, I feel horrible about what I have done. I have failed miserably. What can I do to fix it? 
And he has this existential crisis because he realizes there's nothing he could do. Every person who looks back on their life and their actions and who becomes aware of their sin inevitably gets to this point. I can't do anything. They feel guilt about their actions in the past and they say, I'm going to live a better life. Inevitably, they say, I'm going to give up certain things and do other things. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to get my life in order. But here, David redefines what's really wrong with us. What's really wrong with us isn't just the fact that we have sinned against God, but that we try to make it better ourselves, and it never works. So David says, if I can do something to fix it, can you tell me? And he realizes there's nothing I can do to fix it, and that makes me feel even more hopeless. I want that to sit with you for a moment. It is painful. It's can be discouraging, but I, you also know we don't end there. There is good news that we're led to, but first, to get to the good news of salvation in Christ, we must really know the bad news. The, the, we are meant to be driven to a place of hopelessness in ourselves. And none of us like feeling that way. None of us like getting to that place. I literally was telling somebody, Last week, a hard thing had happened in my day, and she looked at me and said, why don't you cry about it? <laughs> and I was like, that didn't help. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't anybody here. <laughs> we, we, we look, we share our pain, and we want someone to say, it's, it's okay, you can do this. Just, you can do this, have a good attitude. What's good, you know, look at the silver lining. Look at the bright side of it all. The Bible doesn't do that. When we come to God's word and say, God, I am needy, I'm hurting, I have failed. He says, I agree. <laughs> and what will you do about that? Will we continue to dig within ourselves and say, there's gotta be something in here that I can give to you to make it better. And he says, there's not. And that's actually the worst part about you is that there's nothing inside of you you know, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking the rules, doing bad things. But David shows us that sin is not just about breaking the rules. It's also about trying to be our own savior when we do sin. Sin is not just the actual events and actions that we commit. It is also our attempt to make it better. And so in Christianity, it's common to think about two groups of people in the world, the good guys and the bad guys. The good guys who follow God's law and follow the rules to the best that they can. Maybe they make some mistakes, but most part they're good. They're at least better than others. They're better than you, right? And so we think about, you compare yourself to other people and you're just like, well, I know I make mistakes. Everybody sins, right? But I'm not as bad as you. And so there are good guys of which I am a part, and then there are bad guys. The good guys obey God's command. The the bad guys rebel against God's rule, but heaven will not be filled with people who brought good enough sacrifices, but those who have been set apart through the obedient sacrifice of Jesus. Heaven will not be filled with people who found a way to be good enough for God. And so the author moves on next 
to flesh out the significance of this obedience of Christ and what it accomplishes. The will of God, it was always about Jesus. It was always about sending a son who will obey the will of God. The obedience of Jesus is everything. Everything hangs on the obedience of Christ. The first nine verses are really bad news of the old covenant. Nothing can truly get the job done and we feel the weight of that. We're far worse than we thought. We're incapable of doing anything about it to make it any better. And then there's this glaring question if we really understand those first nine verses. We should all be asking this question in our own hopelessness. Can anybody get it done? Is there any hope? Can anybody do it? And the author says, yes, Jesus gets the job done. Jesus is the one, the only one who can get the job done. And this is the point that the author is trying to make. The climax of the passage is in verse 10. And by that will, by that plan, by that purpose of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The good news is this, is that the Bible doesn't end with the story of your failure. But a lot of times that's where we end, right? We say, I'm such a failure, I'm such a sinner, I'm, I'm worthless and no one loves me. The Bible doesn't end there and neither should we. Jesus gets it done. This is the will of God to not end with our failure. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, when, when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, rebelled against God, chose autonomy and independence rather than worship and obedience. At that moment, at their very worst, God rushed into the chaos that they created and said, I will get this job done. I will fix this. I will set it right. And I will rescue you. God is good. And we really have messed things up. But God does not leave his people in their sin to wallow in our pain forever. He rolls up his sleeves. He enters into our pain. He takes upon himself the guilt of our sin. And then he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. He dies. He is buried. He resurrects. He ascends into heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of God waiting until that moment where all of our enemies are made as a footstool to Christ, where all of our enemies are brought to judgment. The story of the Bible is we die or Jesus dies. The God and then, and God and Jesus get together and they choose that it is better for Jesus to die for our sins than to let us die for our own. This is the plan of God from eternity past between, within the Godhead of God the Father and God the Son to come up with this radical revolutionary plan that instead of us paying for our sins, Jesus would pay for it. And he knew it. That's why when he was on earth, he said, I've come to do the will of my Father. I've come to do the will of my Father. Not my will, but his will. Yes, there are desires in me that I do not want to suffer. I do not want to experience the wrath of God, but for the joy set before Jesus, he endures the cross on our behalf. This is the repetitive theme of the book of Hebrews. We die or Jesus dies. Why would you go back to an old way that is only 
in shadows, only in types and metaphors and pictures of the real that would come. Why would you try to work your way to God when Jesus has offered himself for you? He is greater than everything and everyone for all time that has ever been. And Jesus here is presented to us not as a symbol, not as a a metaphor, not as a, a shadow, like all the things in the Old Testament, but the real thing. Notice the language in verse 5 and verse 10. Right? He, first, he gives these words, he attributes the words of David to Jesus Christ. The pre-incarnate Jesus is speaking through David. A thousand years before the birth of Christ, Jesus is speaking. And notice the language here in these verses. What is promised in verse 5 is that God would give a body to the Savior that would come. And that body would be offered as a sacrifice to God, prepared for the pre-incarnate Jesus. And in verse 10, we see that our hope rests in the fact that a body has been given for us for our sanctification. The Old Testament people love tangible signs, right? I mean, they have the temple. They had, we talked about all these rituals. That's what Hebrews is so much about. They love things they could touch and feel and understand and see. And so God says, okay, here's something real, not a, not a shadow, a person, a body, a real life person. Jesus really came. God who is spirit inhabited a human body. He became human, really, physically, truly human, he lived a real life with, that experienced pain and hunger and suffering and agony and temptation of sin. He obeyed God perfectly. He really was crucified. He was murdered on the cross. He really died. And then his, his dead body really came to life. And he really, in a perfect body, really went up to heaven. And he is really alive today. Truly, really, not figuratively. And he is there to intercede for us, to pray for us, to accomplish in us all that he has promised for us. And the life and obedience and death and resurrection of Jesus is not a metaphor for good living. We are not given permission to look in scripture and say, Jesus was a good man. I want to be a good man like him. He's not a metaphor for a better life. He is not a metaphor for being kind. He is not a metaphor for just doing good. He is a real body. His life, death, and resurrection is a tangible, real, and only hope for the forgiveness of sins and access to the love of God. The very purpose of Jesus' coming was to perfectly obey his Father and to die for sinners. That's a picture of true love. This is a picture of true and perfect love. He wasn't forced into it. He wasn't forced into it like all these animals gone before. Not a single one of these animals woke up that morning and said, today I'm going to give my life for the sins of God's people. They were led to the slaughter against their will. And we know, we are told this in the Gospels, that Jesus was led to the slaughter like a lamb, led to the slaughter, but he didn't open his mouth. He didn't fight it. He gave himself willingly. This is a picture of true love. 
He loves you enough, so much, that when given ample opportunity to say, I changed my mind, I don't want to die, he kept his mouth shut. He loves you so much that in spite of your failures, your weaknesses, your rebellion against God, he died for you. This is a picture of love, of, of perfect love. And since Jesus is the reality and not a shadow, a new relationship can begin between sinners and a holy God. A new relationship. And here we move finally into the sanctification of God's people, for which I have three more points. No, I'm kidding. This is this last one. <clears throat> the perfect will of God and the perfect obedience of Jesus have in mind the sanctification of his people. This is a good word. It is a Bible word. It is not to be an intimidating word. Sanctification may feel like a scary technical word. It is a wonderful word that the Bible uses. And it means, it refers to that continual work of God through the Holy Spirit in the life of a sinner, whereby a person is transformed from a sinner more and more into the image of Jesus. Their thoughts, their attitudes, their wisdom, their courage, their life, not just in external actions and thoughts and behaviors, but their inner life completely transformed, recreated into the image of Christ from one degree to the next. This is the way God transforms us and makes us new every day through his truth, through his word, through his love. The work of sanctification is what enables you and I to grow, to be more like Jesus, to say no to sin, to grow in kindness, to grow in good works, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, to grow in faith. It affects every single part of our life, not just the things that people can see or that we can see. It affects everything in us, our internal being, our inner life right down to our desires and our emotions, our affections, the things we love, the things we hate, the things that motivate us. We're talking about the whole person. And here, sanctification refer, is referred to in three tenses. Just like last week we saw, when we talk about salvation in three tenses, right? We have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. Well, here it's also used in three tenses. We have been sanctified, through the giving of Jesus' body for our sins. We have been set apart for good and holy use. We are being sanctified as we are being made continually more and more into the image of Christ. And one day we will be perfect. Won't happen in this life. We will one day when Christ returns, we will be made glorified. We will be made fully sanctified, fully perfect, fully mature. And we look forward to that. The Christian life is like this. The Christian life is, is where we are called that we are both a saint and a sinner. That we are forgiven completely of our sin and God remembers our sin no more and yet there's remnant of our, the consequences of sin and the attitude of sin, the temptation of sin. There's something still, right? We, we've, been, we've been forgiven, but we struggle. Life is hard. Life is miserable. Why is that? If Jesus died for my sins, why are things still hard? 
I'm reminded of, of this example. Maybe it'll be helpful. I got this last year, I got this Yeti cooler. And it was like the kind of the mother, mother of all Yeti coolers. It was designed for hunting to keep your kill in it for like three days and it not spoil. I shot a quail once like 10 years ago and it broke my heart and I'll never do it again. So I didn't buy it for that purpose. <clears throat> I got it for like snacks <laughs> in my car, but it's awesome. And I went on a three-day trip to Flagstaff and I put snacks and I put LaCroix in my Yeti cooler, right? And I think it's gonna be so cold for three days. And I went to Flagstaff, I filled it with all kinds of stuff and I had it in the back seat of my car and I go my trip and then I come home and I you know, got lazy and I didn't unpack it. And I'm like, that's okay. It's just got LaCroix in there and some non-perishables. It's fine. It stays in my car a good three weeks. <laughs> it's fine. It's just LaCroix. It, and, and, and it's just water now. It's not ice anymore. Uh, a couple, you know, a few weeks go by. And then I remembered, wait a minute. There's not just LaCroix in there. Oh, no. I had a whole pound of sliced turkey. Okay. I have never smelled a dead body before. <laughs> But I'm telling you, this smell took 10 years off my life when I opened up this cooler. This was over a year ago, and I kid you not, I have not eaten turkey since. It was the worst, most putrid smell I have ever smelled. I have never smelled decomposing flesh. This was miserable. And I removed the turkey, I cleaned the cooler, and that smell is still there. Yes, I've used essential oils, and it still does not work. <laughs> I know you're thinking, have you tried witchcraft? Yeah, I did. It doesn't get it out. <sighs> it's been over a year. I have tried everything. I have tried baking soda. I have tried essential oils. I have tried every kind of soap. I have tried bleach. I have scrubbed it. I have aired it out. The turkey is gone. The food is gone. It is completely dry, and that smell is there. Okay, now, now the, the analogy isn't perfect, but, but I think something is to, learn, to be learned here about sanctification. Our sin is gone. But the stink is kind of still there. We have been forgiven, and, but we're waiting for something new. There's something yet that has not happened. But there's something true that has happened where God says, I remember your sins no more. But the memory remains for us. The pain remains, the consequence remains, the temptation remains. There's kind of a stink of sin that still remains and that makes us think that God hasn't forgiven us, that there's something we need to give, that there's some other savior we need to look for. But the dead decomposing flesh has been, it has been resurrected. It has been made new. We have been recreated, but the pain still remains for us. Memory of sin causes deep emotional pain. You know what it feels like? It feels like guilt. It feels like shame. It feels like failure. It feels like we are unlovable. And yet God says, and he has told us, told us you have been forgiven. I have written my law on your hearts. I have changed you from your innermost being. And I remember your sins no more. No sacrifices left to be made for our sins, and yet we feel that there's an important work that we need to do and offer to God so that we will be forgiven. We feel that we're incomplete, and yet God says you, are, you have been made perfect, you are being made perfect, and one day you will be perfect. 
We are told that we have been perfected in Christ and yet we feel far from perfect. Sanctification is that continual work of God to recreate in our hearts his truth that never reaches its perfection in this life. And the way we grow, the way we are sanctified is not in considering what we can bring to God. It is to remember what God has brought to us, a body for the forgiveness of our sins. It is, we are meant to look at our forgiveness of sins by his grace through faith. We grow the same way we are saved, by considering the grace of God and resting in it. The memory of sin is, is meant to make us long for Jesus. If you remember your sin, and if you f- remember your failures, the purpose of that is to make you long for Jesus. And if you do anything but that, you're trying to save yourself. And in our longing, we were meant to remember that he gave himself for us. Our, res- our sins are remembered no more. And we're promised that we've been declared forgiven, that we've been changed, that we are being And failures will not determine our destiny because Christ will return one day and bring us fully into his joy. Our destiny is not in our hands. It is in his. Do you see his mercy? This is unfailing love. This is perfect love. This is good love. This is great compassion, powerful enough not just to remove our sins, but to cleanse us from every degree, from one degree to the next, to take away the stink to take away every remnant of it, to make us beautiful in God's sight, to wash away everything that completely destroys. Do you know this love? I mean, do you, do you really know it, not just intellectually, but have you found rest in it? Have you claimed this through faith? Have you said, yes, this is, what, this is the Savior I've been looking for. It's the only one that has been offered because we can't save ourselves. Isn't this a love worth giving your whole life for? And every day waking up and saying, God, I don't know what is going to come my way and be presented today, but I know it's going to be hard, and I know I need to trust in you. And I know I'm going to be tempted to give something and bring something of myself so that I can feel more loved and accepted, and I know that's just going to make me feel more hopeless. So would you continue to remake me, shape my heart, help me trust in Jesus? That's what we do.